They had made the journey along the Jordan River and then up from Jericho into the mountains where the holy city of Zion, Jerusalem, lay. They'd spent the night in Bethany, in the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, friends of Jesus, as was their custom when traveling to Jerusalem. And then that morning, they left Bethany and made their way up the Mount of Olives, passing through Bethpage. And as they crested the mount and looked out across the Kidron Valley to the holy city, uh, shining in the morning sunlight, the heart of the disciples must have begun to beat faster and faster and faster. For this was the day, this was the moment they felt when all of the mysteries were going to be unraveled. These 12 men had staked their fortunes on this compelling rabbi from Nazareth and given their lives to him for three long years. They had forsaken careers. They had given up regular daily contact with family and friends in order to follow him from one dusty village to the next. They had uh, experienced great privations as they made their journey. They had placed their every moment, their every resource in his hands. And they had been praying all along that there might come a day when there would be a payoff to this particular investment. All the while wondering, could this man be the one? Could this man who taught with a greater authority than the scribes and the Pharisees did, could, could he be the one? Were the healings they'd seen him do evidence that the messianic prophecies of the, or the writings of the prophets were now coming true right before their eyes? Were the storms and the demons that they'd seen fleeing before the power of this strange man further evidence and maybe just a warm-up act? Maybe he actually had the power and authority to make even Rome turn and run on its heels and restore to Israel the majesty it had not seen since the days of King David. Was Jesus the one, they wondered. There was so much circumstantial evidence that this was true. The Scriptures had promised that the Messiah would establish His new reign in Jerusalem, and they were about to enter it. Jesus Himself had been saying that His ministry was coming to a close. They could sense that something was about to change. And travelers that had come their way and passed them on the road leaving Jerusalem spoke of the record numbers of people that were even now filling the city at the time of the Passover and how murmurs were already whispering their way through the streets that the Messiah was afoot, was on His way. Could it be merely coincidence that they were approaching the city now at this moment in this sense of suspense at the time of the Passover, the very holiday in Jewish history that commemorated the last time that God had radically delivered His people from bondage. Could this be the denouement, the fulfillment 
of all of the dreams could it be. And for them, it probably seemed like it would finally at long last pay off. All of the hours of sweat, all of their devotion was about to play out in a wonderful way. No more would they be taunted by hecklers. They would be admired now as leaders of the new order. Never again would they struggle to be heard, but would rather enjoy a position of influence now befitting uh, lieutenants of the king himself. In fact, one gospel tells us that in just a little while, they began their conversation. They talked amongst themselves, even debating between them as to which one of them would have a greater place of influence in the obviously coming new administration of Jesus. For as far as they were concerned, the ascendance of Jesus, the raising up of Jesus, could only mean marvelous things for them, arise for them as well soon. They would be princes of his majesty. Can you blame these guys for having some of these thoughts? After all they'd invested. Is there not something inside of all of us that sort of gets it? That when you make a radical commitment to someone or something, you expect that it should pay off. Now, many of us have experienced in our own lives from time to time a sense that after all we've done, after all we've put in, there ought to be some kind of benefit coming our way. Where would the advertising or the celebrity-making industries of American culture be if there weren't a whole lot of us that were rather excited about the thought of rising to a position of celebrity, of power and prestige and, and popularity, each of us can understand, I think, something of what was going on inside of those disciples. We, we get the ambition uh, that was there within them, that filled even the crowd that thronged the, sea, the streets of Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday. And with all of these common human natural inclinations towards rising to a greater position, with all of those, those common orientations of attaining that majesty to which we, many of us at least, aspire, what is harder to understand is the nature of the majesty that came through the gates on that Palm Sunday. Most of us, I think, know the story. We read it just a moment ago in Matthew 21. We heard how a vast crowd pressed around Jesus as he came into the city. They were like moths to the light around him. We read how they stripped off their cloaks and they spread them on the road in the way that loyal subjects in the ancient world often honored their conquering kings. You've heard how others cut palm branches from the trees and spread them on the ground, making a carpet of the branches, honoring Jesus with the royal palm frond, the symbol of royalty still recognized in many parts of the world today. You may have learned way back in your Sunday school days that these shouts of Hosanna, Hosanna meant literally save us and give us success. 
You know, pull us out of the pit and put us on the mountaintop. That's what Hosanna means. That's what they were expecting from Jesus. And you'll have read how the crowd acclaimed him as the royal son of David, the one who would restore Israel to Davidic glory, and how they praised God in the highest heaven for someone who did not only have the aspiration, but the actual authority to give them the power and the success and the salvation they longed for. Now we know the story. We've heard the story well. But with all of this pomp and circumstance, there was something strangely odd about the kind of king who came through the gate of Stephen on that Palm Sunday morning. The Gospel writer Matthew actually gives us a clue to this. Uh, he, He intimates the confusion that arose when Jesus actually came through the gate. He writes, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. And the Greek word for stirred there is the one from which we get our word seismic. What was it about the entrance of Jesus that the whole city was not merely stirred, it was shaken, it was a seismic event when they saw him. And they began asking, who is this? Who is this? I mean, what so defied the expectations of this crowd looking for a particular kind of Messiah that people began looking at each other, at their neighbors, and saying, who is this? Who is this? The plainest explanation I can find is that this long-awaited conquering king came to them in a manner they had never anticipated, at least not adequately. The scriptures say he came gently. He came gentle and riding on a donkey colt. Now, I'm sure that Jesus had other modes of transportation available to him. Uh, How many of you might agree he could maybe have come up with something else? He could have sent the two disciples out ahead of him and said, find me a beautiful horse, a gallant steed, a big white charger would be very appropriate. Bring me one of those. Uh, You'll have no trouble uh, finding one of those in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. Or Jesus could have commandeered a chariot easily. Uh, No problem. Anybody that could make demons flee could have just thwacked away a Roman centurion off of a chariot and brought a chariot to himself as his uh, method of, of entry. Jesus could have ridden through those gates on, on the shoulders of his adoring fans. There were thousands of them around at this time. He could easily have been carried like a conquering victor through the gates like we see at the end of the, of the NCAA tournament. Uh, the coaches being carried. The scriptures uh, tell us that he could easily have been born in on the wings of an angelic army if that's what he wanted. And in fact, on his next coming, that's how he'll come. Jesus will come in glory, in all of the power and authority and a majesty and brilliance and holiness of who he really is. He'll be unmistakably the Lord and the King for this world to see when he returns. But on this coming, on this occasion, 
Jesus chose instead to act out a very crucial parable for all who have the eyes to see it. By riding a donkey colt, Jesus was making two very important points. First, he was fulfilling the prophecy made by Zechariah hundreds of years before, some 500 years before, and saying, in effect, yes, I am the one. I am the one. Long awaited. Long predicted. Secondly, he was also suggesting the kind of kingdom that he was bringing. Jesus chose to come to the world not on a white charger, but upon a simple beast of burden. Not upon a symbol of high supremacy, but upon a symbol of humble service because he was trying to make a point that he hoped that you and I would not miss. I want you to think about this with me for just a moment and really sit with the idea. Because if we miss this, like the crowd on Palm Sunday missed it, we will miss the nature of the king and of his kingdom. Jesus was the divine word made flesh. He was the divine logos, which even the Greeks understood to be the brilliant mind behind this universe. He was the most intelligent being in all of existence. And yet, he was pleased to stop and talk with little kids and to listen to and and speak with those who were dismissed by the world as too immature to deserve their attention. Jesus possessed a brilliant holiness that in its unveiled form could have burned a hole through a mile of titanium like this. And yet, he delighted in stopping to talk with addicts and prostitutes and homeless people and seekers, and lepers, and a whole lot of other people that this world, the polite society of his day, avoided like the plague because they were too dirty. Jesus was in nature a being so exalted that majestic angels next to whom I and you look like cockroaches. Those majestic angels spend all day for eternity face to the ground prostrated in humble awe, grateful for the opportunity to spend everything they are worshiping and adoring and praising his name forever and ever. Jesus, accustomed to the company of those people, yet is happy to kneel to wash the stinking feet of fishermen. He was the most perfectly loving, strong gracious presence ever to cast a shadow upon the earth. And yet he was willing to give up his body and his blood on a cross, the cruelest form of human execution ever devised in order to take the place of people who find it difficult to forgive their neighbor for cutting them off in traffic. And yet he forgave them. What a mystery. 
this majesty. What a mystery. His majesty. Friends, Jesus is what true majesty looks like in all of its beauty and glory. Jesus is the one who defines what royalty and aristocracy truly is. Do not be fooled by the formulas of this world we're constantly being peddled. And every time you or I find a way to turn out of our self-absorbed, self-worshipping, advancing, securing sinfulness and turn outward instead towards the needs of other people in servant love, every time we do that, something of the golden glow of His glorious majesty washes over us and makes us better than anything the world sells to us. And those who've experienced the glow of that never want to really turn back. I think of the story of Kerry Barker, the famous Washington Redskins football player, who after one particularly rough game was returning home one night. He had a short walk from the stadium to where he lived. It was a snowy evening. He passed by a storefront and he saw a little boy sitting down against the wall in front of the store crying. And he stops and he says, kid, what's, what's wrong? What's going on? And, and the little boy looks up at him and he says, My dad sent me to the store to buy some bread and he gave me a dollar and I lost the dollar and I can't call home. And Barker stops for a moment and he weighs his options. He's late for an event he's supposed to be at. There are important people at this gathering. It's a much nicer place than this sidewalk and and he's going to see people a lot more interesting than this kid. But something takes hold of him or maybe it was a someone that night. And leaving his other plans behind, he comes up to the kid, he reaches down, he takes his hand, he lifts him up, he says, come with me, son. And he walks him into the store. And he goes in and he buys him the loaf of bread. And in fact, an entire bag of groceries for the family. And he sends him on his way. But before the little boy walks off down the sidewalk, He turns back and looks up into the eyes of this massive man. And he says, gee, mister, I wish you was my daddy. And Carrie Barker swears that he spent the rest of that night just walking the streets of the city looking for another kid who needed a dollar and a dad. It isn't such a mystery, really, why Audrey Hepburn, the famous actress, says that she had derived far more pleasure from her work as an ambassador for UNICEF than all of the stardom that came with the making of all those memorable movies we know. It's not that much of a surprise, really, that James Kraft, the multi-billionaire founder of the food 
chain that bears uh, the empire that bears his name said once i would rather serve as a deacon and sunday school superintendent in the north baptist church than even head up one of america's great corporations it's no longer really that surprising that our friend Richard Stearns, many of you know him, the head of World Vision. His son works here at our church in our middle school ministry. Rich says that he has derived more sense of satisfaction and, and, and joy in life from working alongside of the sick and the hungry and the struggling of this world than all of the years he spent hobnobbing with the elite as the head of Lenox, China. It doesn't shock some of us that Mama Maggie Gobran of, of Cairo takes more pleasure in spending her life working amongst the poorest of the poor, washing the feet of children, reaching out and giving health care and hope and job training to the poorest of Cairo's poor than all the entertaining activities that could be hers because she's an aristocrat in Egypt. Anybody that has ever really stepped out to serve needs in the way that Jesus does. Anybody who knows what it is to make possible the servant ministry needs of this church, and some of you are in that number, you've unraveled something of the mystery of majesty for yourself. You've seen the donkey king at work. You've chosen to go on the royal ride with him. And because of this, you know that there is no experience of this life that is so glorious in its color. There's no experience that you can have in this world that is so stunning in its impact and so fulfilling in its practice as the life of Christian service. And you just keep longing for more opportunities to step out into it. On Palm Sunday, long ago, both the disciples and the crowd were still unclear on that concept. They just still had the wrong notion of majesty swimming in their brains. It's a waste of time, I think, to be critical of them now. There's a far more pressing question, a question that is going to be answered this week in your life, in my life, by the way we respond to those who do us wrong by the way we treat the people living in our home or in our workplace, by the way we handle ourselves in traffic or out there in the donut line, by the way we spend our money, by the way we use our leisure time, by the way we react to the call for assistance that comes next or somebody near us asking us to help, us, help them with something or the cry of helplessness that comes from the truly helpless. The key question will be not whether we are clear about the path of true power as Jesus displayed it in his living and in his dying. That's not the key question. The question is, are we walking it? Are we actually walking it? How are you serving needs these days? I do not mean, do you like Jesus and what he stands for? I think the answer to that question is yes. I do not mean, are you doing your best? To be nice, a little nicer than others. I think probably the answer is yes. What I'm asking you is are you really serving him in some clear and concrete way right now? 
Are you serving needs? Can you name a person that you are inviting to come closer to Christ and his church? Somebody you're praying for. Somebody you're reaching out for. Somebody who maybe this coming weekend is going to be with us here in this place because you are eager to see them blessed spiritually by Christ and his people. Can you think of a mission or a ministry that you are sacrificially giving to back in some way right now or maybe giving your volunteer energies to? Can you identify a person with deep needs that you're stretching yourself? Maybe that person right now being addressed by that siren with deep needs. Maybe that's a neighbor that you're going to have an opportunity to minister to in some personal way in the days to come. If your answer is yes, yes, I'm serving needs in these kinds of ways, bless you. And if your answer is no, or I'm not all that sure, then maybe you will feel moved today to stop chasing the wrong kind of majesty. In his great book, The Secret of Victorious Living, Harry Emerson Fosdick makes this very provocative observation with which I'd like to close this morning. Fosdick writes, To be a Christian means to take in your strong hands the love ethic, the ethic of Jesus, and go out into this pagan world to live by it, believe in it, adventure on it, sacrifice for it, until we make it victorious in the institutions of mankind. And that is costly, Fosdick recognizes. Yet, difficult and costly as it is, power in the hands of love is always the most beautiful thing in the world. Any kind of power, personal charm, intelligence, skill, leadership, possessions, whatever kind of power you have in the hands of love, being used in the hands of love is the most convincing thing in the world. And so, beloved, let's go forth this week to a world that may still be very confused about majesty. And let us show them what it really looks like. And let's convince somebody of the beauty of the life of Jesus and following him. Let's do that as we go forth to serve needs. Please pray with me. Our God and King, we humbly confess that we are often as mystified about the true nature of power and influence as any who were there on that first Palm Sunday. And because of that, and as we go forth into this coming week, we ask you to give us fresh ears to hear your call, to be the servant of all whom we meet. And not ears only, Father, but also the resolve, the will to respond to your Spirit's command. Each of us pledges to return one week from now able to tell of times and places where we know we lived in a way that showed we were indeed clear on the concept that you laid down upon a cross to raise high, that it is only those 
who stoop to serve, who truly stand tall enough to receive a crown through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.